to episode 30 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you something pretty different. We've spoken to one photographer before, but this episode, we really go deep on photography. I spoke to Ismail Ferdos, a freelance photographer based in New York City. Ismail is something of a photography phenom. He's from Bangladesh, but his first ever publication was in The New Yorker. He's been published all over since then, including for notable work involving refugees and the tragic collapse of a sweatshop in Bangladesh. He now works for National Geographic on a regular basis and has relocated to New York City. I think you'll find the through line of this interview is Ismail's philosophy on how he approaches his photography. I guess you would say it's an if-you-build-it-they-will-come type approach. He often starts shooting pictures without having any idea about where or when or how they will be published. Sometimes things don't work out, but as you can probably tell from this interview, a lot of times they do. He really believed in himself the whole way, even when he had to hide his aspirations from his parents or couldn't even afford enough memory cards for his camera, and there's really something to be said about that. We also talk in-depth about his experience with catching COVID-19, which left him reeling for a couple of months. We spoke as the Black Lives Matter protests surrounding the death of George Floyd were really taking off, and he was just getting back out there, taking photos. You'll note he does say at the end of the podcast that if you have any feedback on what he has to say in this interview, please do get in touch with him. I've posted links to his social media in the podcast description and on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. But if social media isn't your thing, feel free to email me anything you want to say to Ismail, and I will be sure that it makes it to him. You can send that to foreignpod at gmail.com, as well as any other feedback you may have on the show. Okay, without further ado, here's my interview with Ismail Ferdos, a freelance photographer in New York City. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So to warm up, if you could just tell me what your surroundings are right now, both where you are geographically and physically, what time it is, and what your last week of work has been like. Right now, I'm in my office. I live in Manhattan, but my office is in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. All my studio mates are gone out of state because of COVID. So I'm just like enjoying the studio by myself. It's pretty nice, this studio, but it's like all of a sudden the temperature is going really high. So it's a bit humid, but I'm very stubborn this year not to have a air conditioner because I'm, <laughs> it's just like, I never liked it. So I hope I will survive this summer without air conditioner. The last week, actually, it's pretty amazing. So I was sick from COVID from the last week of March. And my COVID was not too mild, also not too wild. So I had to go through the recovery process more than one and a half months. So I was not actually feeling 100%, like 100% energy-wise 10 days ago. It's kind of fascinating. As a photojournalist, I was supposed to be traveling to Europe and some other places for work, for meetings and conferences. Everything got canceled. But at the same time, I was sick and laying down and just resting up for almost two months. I lost all my muscles. And like going even Mm. for like a small walk was very difficult for me. So it was like physical and also mentally because our 
job or work actually photography it needs physical strength but also mental and also like you know looking around everyone saying like keep distance i love people i'm inspired by people so it was very heartbreaking for me when i was going for a walk to see you know six feet apart i definitely follow the rule i appreciate the rule but it's in general like all this effort we have been trying in humanity to be together and now it's stay apart was very difficult for me to kind of swallow in so it's been 10 days that the black lives matter movement has been going on all over the country you know in the states and of course in new york city and i've been photographing it from the day two it's kind of like the first time i'm coming back in shooting i mean i'm coming back in photographing some event which is really encouraging which is like not only something exciting to photograph but the cause the purpose is mm-hmm. very important it's very meaningful and i live in this country as a person of color and this is the movement only not for the black people it's a movement of all the people from all different countries from all different cultures so it's been magical actually last few weeks it's kind of like i got back my hope which kind of disappeared or kind of evaporated during the lockdown of covid and new york had been the epicenter of this country or the world like it's so so dark time we had to go through so i would say i mean i had my best week in last few months last week was the best week in last few months that's great you've been out at the protest taking photos are they going for publication immediately or who are you shooting for honestly I'm not a very assignment based photographer. I like to have assignments because I want to get paid. I want to pay my rent. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I love the creative freedom to just cover a story, make pictures how I want to make them and also tell the story. So, I have been contributing my pictures for National Geographic online, like their Instagram, but mm-hmm. uh Every day I'm photographing for myself or for my archive maybe it could be part of a bigger project I have always been interested in race issue in this country I mean this is where I live but I come from a different country right which is very fascinating like I'm fascinated by this country's diversity but also all this racial injustice and discrimination because I would never believe it or understand it if I were not ever living in this country like you have a different picture you paint in your mind of United States when you don't live here from outside you see only the nice things happening in the United States America it's a dream but when you mm-hmm. live here you really understand actually what I have seen all my life before I moved here about America it's pretty different than when i'm living here it's a very different picture and also it's a responsibility for me like where i live i have to understand otherwise there's no point so yeah to go back to your original question i've been photographing mostly just for myself i mean it's part of the project i mean i moved here right after trump got elected so it was like big shift in this country after obama right so i photographed the inauguration protests in dc and i'm also not a very news photographer 
anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't like to do very spot news photography. I did seven, eight years ago, but now I like to work on stories or like a reportage, kind of long form. So these protests are also kind of historical. My journey too, to live in this country as an expat or as an immigrant, whatever you say, it's also important. Yeah, my work is personal also at the same time. Makes sense. It's a bit strange being an American abroad and seeing all this happening, but being so distant from it. I've been talking to my family who's in Minneapolis, getting a little bit of sense of it. But mm -hmm. still, I kind of wish I was there to experience it. I also wanted to ask you before we got too far along about the COVID thing. I mean, I know it's been particularly difficult for photographers, videographers, because you can't stay home and do your work. Uh, do you know how you got it? And was it the type of thing where you felt you didn't really have a choice because in order to work, you must go out? And do you think that's how you got it? And was that just something you made your peace with that it was a risk? Or how did that happen? Honestly, I don't know how did it happen. And I even I didn't want to think about it because I would have been gone crazy because some people are asymptomatic. And I know a person who is asymptomatic and whoever met that person in that week got sick. So it's incredible. And all how capricious this virus is. Yeah, it was difficult because I had to go out, but also I was taking all the precautions. Uh, we're not wearing gloves, but wearing masks or like trying to clean my hands every time. I mean, cleaning hands, it's not something new for me. After you come home, you clean your hand as a South Asian. I mean, that's a norm. So it was not a new thing for me. But New York City, nine million people live here. People walk or move around in a very close proximity. It's, it's hard to find out. Lockdown was a great idea. I would, I would definitely appreciate the New York governor and whoever was involved in this uh, decision because, you know, otherwise it could have been even worse because it's a big city. It's not like a small town in the middle of nowhere. So it was difficult. And going through this virus, it was also a different thing you know, because you don't know what's going to happen. There is no medication. My PC, my primary care doctor, she was sick too. It was like I went to hospital for a day and they're like, yeah, you are a COVID patient, but we don't have facility to test you. It's one of the biggest hospitals in town. And then like there are no medication. Go home and take rest and have Tylenol. That's it. There's like nothing. And there's so many different kinds of symptoms I'm getting. I didn't have fever or like coughing at all. I had severe chest pain, breathing issues. Like I was having really hard time to breathe and gastronomical problem. I was having like almost, I don't know if you ever had concussion. <laughs> like it feels like concussion. It is more psychological. I was dazing because I had a concussion a couple of years ago. And I know I'm like, wow, it feels like concussion. So it was very strange with me, the, the strain I got feeling lethargic a lot. I was getting up from bed and in the morning, get my coffee. And then like the next minute, I feel like so tired that I have to go to bed again. On the first day or second day, I couldn't smell my coffee at all. The day I couldn't smell my coffee, I'm like, yeah, I got COVID for sure. So living with that for over a month, I was sick, sick for about three weeks, but it took a long time to recover from me. Yeah, wow. What is killing people is the lung problems. And I mean, you have severe chest pains and stuff. How did you know if it wasn't bad enough that you had to go to the hospital like, and be so that, put on that, a ventilator? I learned a lot also about myself 
going through this time of virus. It's quite interesting. I kind of also found out that I think I'm somehow a very strong person. Why I'm saying this, because I don't get scared. And I was like completely by myself. No one was there to take care of me. Because there's no doctor. There's no one going to tell you what to do to stay home, right? So one of my friends, she also got it. And that was the best time, actually. If she was not there on the other side of the phone, it could have been harder. So we are always talking about symptoms. Like whatever I'm getting now, she got like a few days later. So she was like catching up with my symptoms. She also didn't have fever. Very interesting. So we like self-counsel each other. Like we talk each other every symptoms and like you know every time we felt sick my friend she said if you and it's also on the internet that when you cannot breathe properly you should go to hospital and i'm like I'm, i want to go to hospital it's just because hospital is the place where the covid lives unless you are really really sick and then you read the news of one person who was having breathing problem and found dead in his room like right, yeah. found out after two days you know it's like <laughs> so yeah, I'm mentally very strong, but also this virus is freaking weird because you have to like strengthen your immune system, but your mm-hmm. immune system also connected to your psychological strength and immune system are connected. So if you're scared, your immune system goes down. And I'm talking from my experience. So one night I got up, it was like three, half past three in the morning and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe at all. I mean, at all when I was, but I was like having a really hard time. I went to the bathroom, some water on my face, and I opened mm-hmm. the window. It was it was cold. It was like 55 degree or like 10 degrees, something Celsius at night, like three in the morning. So I opened the window, sure. I wanted to breathe, and I couldn't. And then I got really scared. And I called my friend, actually, because like, what should I do? And then I was not feeling well. I was not feeling well. And then like, okay, so worst thing could happen that, I have to call 911, but I don't want to do it because it's such a weird thing. Whenever you see an ambulance, I mean, I live in a very white neighborhood. <laughs> so when you see an ambulance on my block, everyone will be asking what's happening. And like three in the morning, yeah. it's like, I don't want to announce the whole building. And I live in a building that a lot of old people live there. Anyway, so, and like, what should I do? I'm like, okay. So I dressed up, I walked out of the apartment I walked two blocks, but then I was like, I was collapsing. I was like, I cannot do it. So I went, there's a bodega was open. You know, it was such a strange moment that even then I realized, is there any taxi that I can take to the hospital? Is the Uber running? Because everything shut down so quickly that all these things feels very new or uncertain, actually not new. I mean, it was a new normal for us. Then I got an Uber and went to the ER. And everything came normal. Like they took my vitals. The oxygen was 98. And then I spent like half a day there. I came back in the morning. Wow. Yeah, that's scary. I'm glad you got through it. And now having had it, does it change your perspective on going out? I mean, nobody knows about the antibodies, but nobody knows about a lot of things. Um, everybody's kind yeah. of making the decisions for themselves. I mean, do you feel any different now that you've had it? Are you more careful or do you feel like you actually... No, I'm careful. You know, I'm wearing some... masks. I'm wearing masks. You know, I'm like, I came as negative, so I don't have COVID now. But I don't know if, if I'm going to get it again or not. Give me a second. I have to call. <coughs> not a COVID cough, actually. So <laughs> it's funny, like... It, I didn't have cough at all. But also, you know, it's funny because, I mean, in my country, my country, Bangladesh, it's not going through 
a good good time because two days ago my dad's cousin passed away and he had COVID. Oh wow! Yeah, and his daughter and I are like very close friends, or kind of close cousin. Yeah, and one of my cousin's wife and their whole family because she's a doctor. They all got sick. They're hospitalized. So I mean, it's very strange time last few months, which I've never imagined that 2020 is going to look like that. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your relative. That's tough. I guess we'll get into more of the interview proper. The first part is the biographical part. So we like to start way, way back and take us all the way up to present. So if you could start by telling us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and maybe your early education years, and if you started to show an interest in photography early on. I was born in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, a small city with 16 million people. <laughs> <laughs> I was born and raised most of my life in Dhaka, actually. I started traveling in my early, mid-20s. I went mm-hmm. to the university for my bachelor degree for business education. So I have a business degree. I was marketing major. Yeah, I grew up in a very middle-class family where everyone expected me to be a banker, especially my dad, because he's a retired banker from the central bank. And my cousins are either doctors, engineers, or bankers. So I didn't have any example of an artist or journalist or (laughs) creative person in my family growing up. Study was the main priority, like education. I come from a family. I'm the only person who doesn't have master's degree. All my cousins, all my sisters, I mean, I have the younger sister, we're still about to go to college, but all the women and men has master's degree in my family, except me. So back at the time, photography was always something I loved as a kid, but never had opportunity to do it in a proper way. My dad had some film camera, he loves to take pictures too. Like he was only taking pictures of family. Or when we go vacation as a family or like outing, he will be taking pictures of us. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. So I remember first time when I tried to take picture with the film SLR camera, just like I think a Russian camera Zenith. My dad was like, you know, one by 60 at shutter speed, 5.6 aperture. I didn't know what that means, but I was just putting it into the camera and just click it. So I think it was 2009. So the university I went to in Dhaka, East West University, they have a photography club. They were doing an annual photo exhibition. So I went to a photo exhibition, annual photo exhibition, I think in 2008, I guess. And I saw like these beautiful pictures were made by my classmates or like my batchmates. And I was like, wow, pretty amazing, actually. I love to take pictures too, but I never tried to take pictures. And why cannot I show my picture? It was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. I really got into the idea of getting a camera because I didn't have a proper camera. So long story short, I had to try to save up, save up some money for six months and asking my uncles, my dad. So like people donated a little bit of money and then I had to wait. But anyway, so I bought a camera and my dad came with me. And I think at that time I was on the second year or third year of my business school. So and my dad came with me when I bought the camera and he said like, Take pictures, but don't spend most of your time taking pictures. You have to focus <laughs> on study. And I'm like, no, 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 it's just a hobby. 
like don't take pictures seriously he was trying to give that message to me yeah so sure. no, never no i'm not gonna do it and back at the time uh, <laughs> i'm very like other bangladeshi students going to university i had a girlfriend my ex-girlfriend she always said that if you become a photographer we're not gonna ever get married because my parents will not accept it you have to have a permanent job you know <laughs> i'm not gonna be a photographer how could i be and then i started taking pictures the next year i submit for the annual photo exhibition in my university and i won the first and third and photographer of the year you know oh wow <laughs> so i was like wow it's pretty impressive like i can do it you know i was very inspired but like at the same time i was hiding my camera on my way back home coming back from university so i was hiding my camera to my cousin's place so when i come home from my university class so my parents don't see i had a camera with me the whole day yeah. so i was taking pictures and hiding the whole idea that i'm not taking pictures i didn't have a job it's not like america you do like you know part-time jobs or something but nowadays it happens a little bit but 10 years ago it was not like that so now i see that kids go to coffee shop and work as a barista but like back at the time no like 10 years ago it was not like that so i mean i didn't have money i didn't do any clothing shopping for two years and I, I didn't buy any books for my university so i was like borrowing it from the other students who already passed that course then i am investing whatever money i save into my photography into my traveling i was not very sure that i was going to be a photographer to be honest but more i, I was spending time and taking pictures more i was becoming very very like inspired motivated and something i always look for in my whole life that i was not satisfied what i was doing before i started photography now i feel like oh there is a purpose of my life there is something i could do with this i'm not very good with my written language or spoken language but maybe i found another language or voice which is my photography and you know i started taking pictures with butterflies and blue sky and rose but then i came back home after taking those pictures and like this picture doesn't satisfy me it was like liberating for me to find photography then i was going deep into it actually what kind of photography i want to do mm-hmm. or could be more meaningful not just to take pictures which could add something to our society or to the change and then also like growing up in bangladesh bangladesh has a lot of good photographers but our newspaper magazine don't have good photography in bangladesh there's no picture editor in any newspapers or magazine they cannot afford huh. it. strange <laughs> yeah even i couldn't imagine to become a newspaper photographer in bangladesh because there's like very limited position as a staff and if you are not staff you never get paid for your pictures they will tell you that you got published what else you want that's what i heard before even i was trying to start my photography so how could you imagine making a living out of it? it was not the main purpose to become a photographer to make a living out of it because it was just something i was trying it's kind of like having a flashback i was very humble and it was such a big thing for me to call myself a photographer i was like am i really a photographer now it right. took me a while like you know first three four years because you know i have so much respect to this profession so anyhow i fell in love with photojournalism i fell in love with documentary photography a bit later because i was exploring and i would say i'm very lucky that i live in a world where internet exists if it was like in the 90s i could have had a different story like maybe i would have never made as a photographer i was studying i was looking at pictures what people have done and 
I got inspired and I didn't look for jobs like hire me or something. I would get hired because my work will speak for me. I don't have to speak. So my main focus was to create some good pictures means like good story. Tell a story that contemporary and coherent. So I started researching stories and trying to find stories and started traveling before I graduated. So when I graduated from business school, I already have a story on my belt. My first story was climate change in Bangladesh. Yes. What was that? Or did it appear in a publication? Or Funny, yeah, it did actually. So I did my story. It was like out of pocket. It was a great, I would never forget that. Like I went to shoot, I didn't have enough memory card. So it was very remote. There's even no electricity. I was living with a fisherman, like an open space. It's not a building, but it's like a hut. And I ran out of memory space and I started deleting the pictures because otherwise I would not be able to photograph next couple of days. So a lot of hardship. Anyhow, so I did the story and then I had to find money to continue. And I borrowed some money from people. It's so funny, actually, because I was so confident that I'm going to get a grant or win an award or someone publish it and I'll get money. And I just borrowed money from one of my uncles and I went on trips to make a project. And I came back, I think a couple of months later, I got a grant from Alexia Foundation, which is from Syracuse University in New York State. And I think that story I first published at The New Yorker. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's big for your first going from, you know, I'm not sure if I can even get it published in a newspaper in Bangladesh to the New Yorker. Yeah. That's amazing. So, you know, funny stories like I never worked for any Bangladeshi newspaper magazine ever. It's not like I didn't want to, but it never happened. But how did you get hooked up with the New Yorker because of the grant? Did so you make connections that the way? Workshop and some money. And I had an exhibition in Manhattan. And when I came to visit, I went to meet picture editors and to show my work and New Yorker picked it up. Wow. I mean, before that, actually, I worked on the story and then I found myself confident that I could carry on. I said to myself that I'm going to give it a shot to become a photographer. As a backup, I have a business degree. So I, I give it a shot and so far never had to look back. That's great. I mean, when you were borrowing money, even from your uncle, did you have to pretend it wasn't for this project? But afterwards, were you able to, I don't know, come out to your family as a photographer? Oh, and I mean, my uncle was kind of my friend, but my parents, it's, it's a good story. Actually. A couple of years ago, my mom said that, you know, you never disappointed us in a way. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, you always lied to me or lied to us. But I think it was a good lie. So the lie was, until 2016, my parents will sit with me and ask me, so, okay, you had enough. You are traveling. You have been exhibiting. But these are temporary. Because my dad comes from a, like, very structural system. Pension, 95 job. And they're like, you seem to be doing good, but we have to make a plan for your life. Life cannot go mm -hmm. like this forever, right? And I'm the mm -hmm. oldest among four in my family. And as an older man in your family, <laughs> it comes with a lot of responsibility in our culture. So, sure. so going back to my mom's point, she was like, you lied to us, but that was a good lie. Because I always said, so when they said with me what I'm going to do with my life, I always said, like, give me six more months. I'm going to quit photography and I'm going to go back to job or find a job you know so that's like <laughs> i keep saying that lie for like i don't know six years and finally 
around 2016, they got convinced they're all right. I think he's doing good. We're not going to stop them what he's doing right now. And they're proud now. They're proud of me, right? which is fascinating. <laughs> like most of the time, they don't know my work. Like they see a little bit of work and they still don't understand. Most of my family, mm-hmm. I'm a very surreal example for them because not surreal. It's like not understandable. It's just so people ask me, what do you do? But like, I don't know what to say. You take pictures and you get money. So what I'm going to answer to people, if they ask you, what do you do? So I'm like, tell them I'm just a journalist, photojournalist. They're no journalists, but photojournalists still it's not very clear. And I'm not saying that that's a problem because it's a very unique title or a unique thing someone is doing in my family. It took a while. It actually, it kind of funny, like I realized that they understood, my dad especially, he understood the point. So in 2016, I was traveling to India for two weeks with David Letterman. Oh, wow. That's and, random. <laughs> yeah, it's very random. David Letterman. And one of the days we had to meet Indian prime minister at his house for lunch. Like, yeah, for tea, actually, not lunch. And I took pictures of the prime minister of India, Modi, and David Letterman. And at the end of our shoot, because I was shooting with the National Geographic Channel, we took a group photo. And somehow I was also in the picture. And it's kind of funny. I mean, I don't like Modi and I'm not a fan of Modi, but I ended up in the picture. And from my screen, I took a picture on my phone or from my camera screen. I sent it to my mom and she saw it. And that's it. What happened two months later, I went to a pharmacy in Dhaka in my neighborhood where I grew up. And the guy asked me, so you met Modi, right? I'm like, what? I didn't get that. Like, I was asking for some paracetamol. It's like uh, ibuprofen and, or like uh, Tylenol. And sure. it's like, you made Modi, right? I'm like, how do you know? I didn't get it, like, when he said it first time. And yeah. No, your dad was showing the picture that you were with Modi. Like, oh, okay. It's kind of funny that he's a very quiet person, but he's showing me taking pictures of Modi. I'm like, okay, maybe finally he's accepting. It's not the Modi, but it's like more likely... I'm in the house of Prime Minister of India. Yeah, it's a sign you've made it um, <laughs> in a tangible way. Wow, that's funny. I'm guessing the first few years you're really getting into photography. You're basing yourself in Dakar and just traveling. Um, Not because, Dakar, yeah. actually, it's Dhaka. Dhaka. Dakar yeah. is the, <laughs> the hey, African... People mix it up with Senegal, Africa. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have, I have friends, they have stories because she is based in Dakar and there is a garment factory fire in Dhaka and she got a call like, oh, there's a fire factory in Dakar and she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I think it's funny. That's why I said that. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is funny. I hadn't thought about that. So you're basing yourself there and you're doing trips because, yeah, looking at your website, I see you've kind of photographed things all over. So my, my website has not been updated last two years or three years, actually. Like I didn't put any story from Nadju stories. What kind of stuff are you doing at first? Like once you get the New Yorker thing, you see, okay, this is something I can probably do. How do you, I mean, you know, set New about Yorker building on it? was very inspiring for me. But like I already knew that I'm on my track. So I was focusing on, I think, the story with some meaning, not just random pictures. I love making pictures, but like I was looking for purposeful stories. So later on, I land on 
my biggest project so far is the garment factory workers in Bangladesh. And in 2013, I photographed the Rana Plaza collapse, which was a significant part of my photography journey. Mm -hmm. And also my personal journey too, like to be a witness, to be there and photograph the saddest and the worst industrial collapse in the history. Right. So if I have to talk about my journey as a photojournalist or photographer, definitely Rana Plaza collapse is a big chapter of my journey of photography. So, I mean, that's a major world event that's in the news. You said you used to do more spot breaking news stuff. I mean, was that the kind of thing you were out there a lot every day after day shooting things, selling them to different publications? And how, how did that work? Did, so, you, already, mean, you, know, did you have that like, figured out? If I like a story, no one has to send me. I'll be right there. It doesn't need to be very spot news. It can be a very spot news kind of story environment, but you can photograph in your own way. As a photographer, it doesn't have to be very action because there are many ways to tell stories and to see stories. Tell the same story in different ways. That's what I'm trying to say. So when Rana Plaza collapse happened, I was home. I heard it from my uncle. I went to TV and I saw it and I took immediately grabbed my camera and ran. It was in the outskirts. And I photographed for two days. And on the third day, I got a call from Associated Press. And they put me on assignment for a month. So, wow. yeah, my picture was like on the top photo of AP for weeks. And then I continued a couple of months for Associated Press uh, for different assignments. But that's the only time I worked with wires. So very like spot news situation. Sometimes I did in the New York Times when the Turkish military coup happened. I also shot for New York Times newspaper, which is also very spot news kind of situation. But to answer to your question, I do less spot news, but I'm still like the protest. Is it a spot news? I mean, it's a current news. I think it's the aesthetics and the styles are different because I don't want to contribute to these piles of thousands of pictures people have been making. What is my point to be there? Taking same pictures. They're like, yeah. I take some pictures, but you know, maybe I want to show or tell it in a different way. This is how photography can be interesting or also can be boring. Because if you see same sort of pictures every day, for me, sometimes it's unnecessary. Because if one moment is taken by 10 photographers, I'm the number 11 showing up the same thing. And I don't know, I don't see any purpose of that sometimes. So that's why I also like to work on personal projects. So that's what happened coming back to Rana Plaza again. Covered as a spot news, took a break. I didn't know I was traumatized. I spent six months in New York City back at that time. I was not living in New York and made a documentary film with a colleague, Nathan. And we published it at the New York Times, Obdog. And also I was like two, three years old in the industry. I was always trying to find a way like how your picture can be more than just a picture or sitting on your hard drive. So the Deadly Cost of Fashion, the documentary me and my colleague worked on jointly came from that idea of like, how could I use all these pictures which has not been published? And there's so many pictures I have on my hard drive. Can I give them another life, another chance to speak up for the cause? So yeah, this is how the Deadly Cost of Fashion was born, the documentary, it's a short doc. And then I projected my pictures onto the building of Lincoln Center on the first night of Fashion Week. 
from the Rana Plaza collapse. It's kind of like activism, but I'm not an activist. I'm maybe I was doing advocacy with my picture. So it, it had different life, different chapters. That's the idea was one idea, but the use of photography and different media in different ways or different time. Anyway, so later on, two years later, in the meantime, I wrote an article about my project for the Harvard Magazine, Harvard International Review. Then I had a TEDx talk in Maastricht in the Netherlands, also about the cost of fashion. So two years later, in 2015, so 13 was the collapse and 15, on the second year anniversary, I initiated a brave project, I have to say, back at that time, because Instagram was still trying to figure out it was new. Why I said it's a brave project, because I created a completely personal funded project. Later on, I was funded by the Dutch government. And I actually won the first grant from Gady Images Instagram grant. Instagram gave us money to continue this project. So the project was called After Rana Plaza. I mean, the listeners can look it up on Instagram. Or also, it has a standalone website, afterranaplaza.com. And I posted 200 days in a year on that particular project. And I was taking pictures and posting. And I use Instagram in a very innovative way back at that time, because back at that time, you can only post 15 seconds of video and one video. There is no stories. You know, there's nothing. Only square pictures. And, you know, it's funny, like when Instagram saw this project, when I applied for the grant, it's like, oh, it felt like it's like a back end hack by you on Instagram. We even didn't know that you could use Instagram that way. That way I put the project on Instagram, you actually see it's a picture, but when you tap onto it, it starts talking to you. So I actually put the audios on the top of the pictures and post it as a video, and you can hear the voice of the people who are in the picture. So it was kind of like I used the platform of Instagram. Uh. We say like, you know, as a photographer or journalist, we give voice to the voiceless people. So I kind of, I wanted to literalize it. So you see a person... And you hear her voice or his voice. It's in Bangla, but I use a caption as a subtitle, caption uh, portion. And if you want to read more, you can go to the website and read about that person like thousand words. So I also collaborated with writer because I'm not a writer myself. So I interviewed people or the survivor of Rana Plaza collapse, and also stakeholders. So I played a commentator's role after two years, what's happening after 1,130 people died and more than 3,000 people got injured in one building collapse. And these are all underpaid sweatshirt factory workers. And so it strikes me that, I mean, you take a very, if you build it, they will come type approach where you go do the thing that speaks to you, whether it's running down to the plaza collapse immediately after and starting to shoot before you even know what you're shooting for or putting these things on Instagram as a way of creative expression or trying to do something original. But it sounds like you start making these things and then I guess people know where to find you when you get a call or it happens more naturally that it ends up appearing someplace. Is that correct? I mean, that's the best thing, right? I mean, this is amazing. You have this creative freedom. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a good marketer myself. I started marketing, but I'm not a good marketer. You can tell because my website has not been updated last two years or even three years. So I don't know. I always believe in it. I think I give my 200% 
whatever I believe in it. And I think maybe it, <laughs> it comes back to me in a way. I don't know, actually, how to answer that. But I really believe. Yeah. Is that really how it worked? Like, did you start making that documentary before you even knew oh, yeah, absolutely. where it would go? Absolutely. There was a point, actually. This is funny. There's a point, me and my colleague, and I was like, maybe we should not give it to them. We'll just sell. sell. <laughs> we actually, I think we first said no to the New York Times Opdoc. Oh, wow. Then I think on the second time, we thought of like, okay, maybe they're a good reach, you know, we should do it. So, yeah. There is nothing in my life, nothing can fulfill my any desire but working on my personal project. I love working on personal projects. I work, I love working on my personal craft, creating, you know. The issue can be contemporary, the issue can be forgotten, but I think that's the best way as a photographer I can bring stories to the people. Like, for example, the bringing Afarana Plaza, where was my biggest success of that project? Because I never set a success goal and what I want to reach. Because I'm not a business. It's photography. It's personal. It has emotion. It has feelings. I'm not a salesman. So when I went back to photograph these 40 people after two years, the survivors of Rana Plaza collapsed. One guy told me he lost his son and his wife. And he told me that I never imagined someone will knock on my door two years later and ask me, how am I doing? So these things are very important in my life. This is how I get inspired to work on projects or tell people stories. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important because oftentimes we only try to feed what people want. But like sometimes we should think of creating something to show people differently. Right. Creating something to show something in an original way that you yeah. want to show it and creating something you want to see exist in the world rather than something that somebody's already thought of. There's a recognized demand for it. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. So I guess, yeah, let's talk a little bit about you relocating to New York and if you're thinking behind that and how that's changed things for you and if there have been any highlights since then. I live most of my life in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, so or like two-thirds of my life. And I was looking for a base somewhere else because I wanted to work internationally. And it was not always easy flying in and out of Dhaka. And with, with the Bangladeshi passport, it's not a very pleasant experience trying to work in Europe or America. And I was trying to find a base where it can be located centrally centrally located in terms of global map. So yeah, New York, I came from a big city. Dhaka is a big city. New York is a big city. I'm, I'm a city boy. I'm born and bred. So initially I was thinking of moving to Istanbul, which is one of my favorite city in the world, but it didn't happen. Some incident in our Turkish politics, it's kind of, yeah, I lost my motivation to live in Turkey after especially the military coup. I saw it was coming in 2014 and then in 2016, it went really downhill. And, you know, New York is a fascinating city. It's kind of a dream. Actually, it was never been my dream. But when I came here first time in the U.S., I came to D.C. and I came to New York for five days. And I'm like, wow, if I ever live in America, I would live in New York City. This is what I like. And now I'm a New Yorker, you know, we have a great photo community here. All the best publications, especially the East Coast has mostly these 
New York Times, New Yorker, National Geographic, and this course as well, who I shoot for mostly these days. So yeah, having them around where I live, which is, I think, also, you know, there's like a vibe inspiring also sometimes to live in New York City as a photographer. I don't know how long I'm going to live here, but at least I see myself in this next few years to live here. And also, you know, in terms of American politics lately, I'm also interested in politics. So it's a very strange time, rough time we're going through. But also as a photographer, it sometimes inspires me to tell stories, which maybe I would have not been able to cover living in Dhaka or somewhere else. Because it would be harder to, I mean, I imagine yeah, it's harder to like, just you know, fly into the U.S. Yeah, and it's a huge country, it's a continent. And sometimes if we're too far from the story, like you're physically too far, could be also like psychologically too far. So being somewhere and covering the local stories, I think also fascinating. I think it's something differently gives you an advantage. And what percentage of your work now would you say you do in the U.S. versus doing in other countries? Because you said you wanted a base to do international reporting. I mean, is it half-half? Do you still... Yeah, it used to be a lot of half-half, but now I'm trying to do more stories in the States. It's like I had to change my plan a little bit. It depends. It's not very concrete all the time. This is also kind of interesting of being a freelance photographer. At the beginning, I was mostly working outside the country. Then I realized, like, oh, I'm living in a country and I'm not understanding this country because I'm not spending enough time. So since 2019, I started spending more time in the U.S. and traveling less because I don't want to get bored also with my subject matters. And last year, I didn't work in my country at all. Like one story, I think I did in Bangladesh. So now I'm, I've been researching some stories in the U.S., and around this continent. And in terms of how it works, how you make your living, I mean, you said you used to do more photojournalism, and now do you see yourself more as a documentary photographer? And what is the difference? I mean, I'm, difference? I'm still a photojournalist, but also as a documentary photographer, I don't know, like the fine line is like, maybe it gives me more creative freedom. It's not like I saw a lot of photographer, documentary photographer look down to photojournalism, but I think it's a very stupid and hypocritic thing to do. I'm still a photojournalist, but also, I don't know, there's like a very invisible line. It's a documentary photography. There's more breathing space. Things are not very uptight, not very much in the box. It can be outside the box and inside the box. This is what I see documentary photography is. It's not like shoot, shoot, shoot. It's more like you're taking pictures. You're thinking and investing yourself more into the idea of a story. So maybe I'm trying to say that I'm more interested in long-form projects rather than only one-day shoot, only one-day. Uh, sure, that makes sense. So like if someone gives me an assignment, I would like to go for four or five days at least. So I'm not just like parachuting, taking pictures and leave. Rather like maybe trying to understand or be respectful to my story or the protagonist I'm working with. So... Mostly I'm doing these days magazine stories for, for example, National Geographic. When I worked on their first story for the magazine spread, it was five months, almost six months assignment working on one story for that long. It's a great experience, but also 
when you work on a story for that long, it helps you to have a strong understanding about the subject matter you are working on. And it definitely helps you tell a story which could have been shot in two days and you spend three days or, or five days, spend five months. That gives a different layer of understanding of the story. And in terms of making a living, it sounds like you make your living still working for journalistic publications. Yeah, yeah. Mostly, yeah. I do some corporate, like, commercial assignments, but mostly editorial. Gotcha. So like that David Letterman Modi thing, that must have been, you were taking the photos for the Letterman show. Sort oh, of it thing. was for National Geographic Climate Change Show. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He was a host for that episode. Oh, cool. Let's see. So if it's all right with you, the next part we'll talk about is about stories. To start, I normally actually like to start with a story that got away because it's better to end on a high note with a story you're proud of. So if you can think of a story that quote unquote got away for whatever reason, either you couldn't get access, you couldn't sell an editor on it, you couldn't... Mm. It was too dangerous, really, a reporting trip that went bad. Whatever reason, a story that you wanted to do, but for some reason uh, weren't able to. There's a story I started early in my career. Then I never was able to sell the story or like no one was interested. And then Uh five years later, I got an email out of the blue from a Californian magazine. They wanted to commission me to do a story. Even they didn't know that I worked on the story. So it, it's kind of interesting. That, <laughs> could a, <laughs> that could be an example. Sure, yeah. Because also it's important in a way, the story to talk about, because sometimes you feel it's important, but it's like when you create something, you report something, you make some art. Sometimes everyone is not going to understand you. Everyone is not going to believe what you are doing. But if you really believe and you keep continue doing it or like you anyhow do it, and then you see what will happen next. It may work out, it may not work out. So I think it's important to listen to yourself, not always get demotivated, but what other people say about your work and about your thoughts. I mean, those are like lessons I learned just by doing it. I was demotivated by many people. They're like, oh, it's not going to work out like this. It's, it's not who would care about this story. But it's important to think about your audience. That's really important. But also you should work on stories or you should work on reportage that you also feel connected to and feel important to tell. For me, it's never been like I would only do this story if I get paid well. No matter what, it's a good story, bad story. If it's a good story, I would work for less money. I would not care. Many stories fell apart. You know, I have like so many projects I started and never finished. And for example, the story I worked in Bangladesh with the HIV AIDS positive patients in Bangladesh because you don't see much of this coming from Bangladesh. And then I worked in a hospital where they get treated for a couple of days. And it was hard to work with that story because also it was hard for me to show their faces in public as a report, because actually they don't know what's going to happen. There are a lot of stigma with the HIV AIDS and especially in Bangladeshi Muslim culture. So I worked on that a couple of weeks and never published. There's a small reportage on my website about that, but also the names are changed. You cannot see their face very clearly. So I don't know. Those stories didn't work out. 
For example, when I went to cover Kobane in the border of Syria and Turkey in 2014, I was there when the influx was happening right away. Actually, I was accidentally was there. I was in Turkey visiting and that happened. I flew to eastern Turkey and covered the refugee influx coming from Kobane while it was attacked by Daesh or ISS. And the coverage, the reporting, I think it's one of the important or like good reporting I have ever done. But also I was not satisfied once I came back I was not satisfied what I have done there. It was a good reporting, but I was not satisfied because I wanted to go back. I wanted to actually follow up the stories. I went back in 2015 and it was very hard to move around. No one was like commissioning it, commissioning me for that. I like I paid out of my pocket and actually I spent 10 days the same place in the border of Turkey and Syria and I didn't get any pictures from that trip hmm. but still like I'm very glad that I went there because I just didn't want to abandon a story or you know because I care so the whole idea of to go back to actually kind of revisit the place I worked and kind of follow up with the story and the people it's kind of like doesn't matter that you're going to get commissioned or not sometimes, but you should always maybe at least try if you feel like to give it a shot. Because, you know, you're a reporter. Sometimes you never expect to happen something and it happens. And it's quite often in your profession, right? Like Because a lot of the times you go with an idea and then you walk out with a different story. That also happens. And many of the times, it's, it's your intuition. You expect something to happen, something may happen or something may not happen. But this is always like an intuition always triggers you to get there. I see what you mean in terms of sometimes you'll go on a hunch and you'll get lucky and you'll be in the right place at the right time and you'll get an amazing story, even if it's not the story you thought it was going to be. And obviously, if you don't take the chance, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. But that also means sometimes you're acting on a hunch that doesn't pan out. For the one about the Turkish border, did you eventually publish it anywhere after you visited a second time or are those just on your site? No, from that trip, I didn't get any good pictures. And from the first trip, you didn't publish either? Yeah, I did publish from the first trip. Yeah, I won multiple awards. Uh, They have been published all over the world. That is also one of my important works I've done, actually. That's a good one on stories that got away. And then the next is a story you're proud of. If you could just tell me about a story you're proud of and walk me through from getting the idea to going out and shooting it to publication and any reaction. I moved to America in 2016, and early 2017, I got an email from National Geographic magazine editor asking me to pitch ideas about race stories, which is incredible because they want me to do a race story. And I was very interested, but also I was not prepared for that because, you know, when you talk about race in America, it's a, such a vast thing. It's such a heavy thing. And I think I was not prepared enough to work on that story. And also, it was kind of my early days moving permanently in the United States. 
I decided to let it go. I decided not to pitch <laughs> an idea <laughs> because I was honest with myself. You know, like when an editor reaches out to you, you don't want to miss the opportunity. But I was more interested. Maybe I would be much more fit for the telling South Asian stories because there's a huge number. I think they're like third largest immigration like right now or like one of the most educated immigrant groups. South Asians means... Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Sri Lanka, and America. And there's like, because the people who came from those countries, they have a very strong culture. And then you have this American culture. Sometimes it's very confusing. Confusing that they create this new culture, bringing their own culture and an American culture. And they have this very strong attachment to their culture. Like, I know lots of Indian and Bangladeshis, they follow American holidays, but they also do celebrate their own cultures holidays maybe those people were born in america and never been to their own country but still they practice their cultural celebration so going back to the original story i i pitched a couple of ideas but it was too late i pitched it two months late and there's no way my story is going to be picked up by NetGeo. but like i pitched a couple of ideas then one idea was about south asians in america and why also it is important because most of the South Asians came from their countries like India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh. And there's a huge migration in the 60s and 70s and like as a skilled worker. So most of the people came as a doctor, engineers, and now they're mm-hmm. like second or third generation or yeah, if their parents are first generation and then now they're having their kids in their mid-20s or 30s. And they're like, in look at tech industry, so many Indians work there, so many South Asians especially. Now you see a big number of stand-up comedians coming from this cultural pocket. So I think it's kind of a momentum the South Asian people going through it's very important and also there's a taxi cab generation too but like you know there are a lot of cab drivers in new york city or bangladesh or indian but their children now going to college and educated it's the beginning of their changing face of south asians in this as well anyhow so i got a call in 2017 actually from the editor like six months later that they want to actually do a story on south asian americans in america I started working on this story in 2017 and worked about six months on the story and traveled around America, East Coast, West Coast, Texas, many, many, many places, actually. Did you uh, do it all in, all in one go? Did you, like, uh, get a car? I took, and... I took break, yeah. So I did the whole California in one go. So I was in Northern California, Southern California. So uh, the California is one go. Then I was in Texas. I was in yeah New Orleans, the East Coast. The East Coast was easy because I, I mean I'm based in East Coast. I'm based in New York. Yeah, it was incredible. You know, I went to wrestling WWE. <laughs> so I went to like <laughs> WrestleMania is kind of like World Cup in, in New Orleans. And one of the wrestler is Pakistani parents from Pakistan. He was born uh-huh. in Chicago. And he is the first Muslim South Asian in WrestleMania. It was his first time. It was <laughs> incredible. But I mean, like the whole experience at WrestleMania was kind of bizarre as a photographer. Then I was in Silicon Valley. I was in Google and YouTube headquarters, like 
to give you an example, when I went to have my lunch at the cafeteria, so there are only two kinds of food that serve you. Either it's Mexican or it's South Indian at the Google cafeteria, which is incredible uh-huh. because most of the people who work there, they're Hispanic or like Indian descent or like South Asians. I photographed the mayor of New Jersey, Ravi Bala, who is also a Sikh, you know, parents from India. Then I was in Uber City. It's a small city. I mean, you cannot call it cities. It looks very suburban. I think like a couple of hours west from Sacramento. I photographed the mayor. She is the first South Asian decent Punjabi mayor. I mean, they're Punjabi, South Asian, and she was born in America. She's incredible. That's like very deep America. You find South Asian decent mayor. So many examples, so many people I met. For example, when I was in Houston, Texas, spelling bees, past 10 years, I'm referring to 2018. So past 10 years, all the time, the winners were an Indian kid. Indian kid made the parents from India at the spelling bee, Houston. And I photographed their prepping. I followed an Indian kid and also a Pakistani kid. Means like they're Pakistani-American, Indian-American. And... Also that year, the winner was a kid, parents from India, and then the runner-up was like kid, parents from China. So it was incredible how South Asians, as I mentioned before, they're like one of the most educated immigrant group in the United States. But my experience, I'm an expat or immigrant, whatever you say, in this country, but seeing how these South Asians, their parents came and then they build their life in this country and they're going to all this major industry of this country. And it was quite interesting to see and kind of experience. And I think it was not only understanding the culture perspective of assimilation and integration, but also it helped me to understand America. Because America is not like white. America is not black. America is not brown. It's everything. I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to work on that story. Thankful to my editor, my publication, National Geographic, to have that opportunity to work on this kind of story. That that helped me to understand the country. Because in America, it's a very complex country, I would say. If you just only live in New York City, you won't be able to understand the rest of the country if you just live in New York City. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing assignment, an amazing experience. I guess my question about it is when you bring a piece like this all together, six months, I'm sure of any individual one of these things you went and photographed, you come away with a lot, a lot more photographs than there's space for in either the print magazine or online even. You've really got to whittle it down. How does that process work? Do you send all your photos to the editor and they make selections or do you whittle it down for them or do you make the final selections and how do you feel about that process of getting from a million photos down to a dozen 20 yeah it's it's actually both me and my editor we had to pull our hair off because it was just i ended up shooting forty-five thousand pictures and guess guess what like how many pictures we publish in 20 pages spread 15 (laughs) wow so Working with National Geographic, it's a great honor and experience. And also it makes you feel like naked because you send them all your pictures. That's the rule, working with National Geographic. If I take a selfie during an assignment, I have to send that too. It's like you send the whole role, you know, when you're shooting film. 
to the news desk. It's like right. you keep everything you shot on those days you shot for Nat Geo. And I had to send like, I don't know, four or five times my hard drives full of images and like 45,000 images I photographed. And then what happens? We have an interim. So they will invite me to come to the office for a week to work with the editor, edit it down, working from DC headquarters. And then I had to do a pre-show to the director of photography department. And then if she gives me green light, I'm going to show it to the editor-in-chief and the board members very close door. I had to present the project. If they don't like it, they can kill it. So it's very intense. So if you get the green light in your interim, you know, halfway through the project, then you are quite safe to move on and publish wrap-up. But there's also a final presentation. So once I'm done with the project, me and my editor will sit again and then go through all the pictures and make a selection of 40. And then we will present to like all the picture editors, National Geographic, video team, design team, editor-in-chief, the writer. And I had to present in front of all of them. And so, through that process, you get down to the last 15 based yeah. on all of their input. Yeah. So an individual piece of that, say going and covering WrestleMania, that one story, does it just get one photo? Yeah, one photo. Yeah, maximum one photo. <laughs> yeah, we call it like, you have to kill your darlings, like, you know, favorite pictures. And then my editor and me, we get into an argument like, oh, so my editor was like, you want 40 pictures in the magazine? The whole magazine is for you? I'm like, no, but <laughs> I love this picture. <laughs> yeah. Did the rest go into some sort of archive at National Geographic or something? Yeah, it went to archive. And also, actually, I mean, in total, I think there were like 35 pictures got published. I had so many good work, actually. They had to do like two online sections. They published it online, too, actually. There are more pictures online than the print. That's cool. And do you remember offhand what the title was? Yeah, Building Their Own. Building Their Own. How South Asian Americans are building a new American dream. Cool. I'll look for it and post a link. Okay, yeah, that's a great example. That's a great story. So the next part of the interview is like the rapid fire questions. I call it the lightning round. Do you feel ready? Yeah. So the first question is, what is a must read or must watch publication that you look at almost every day? New York Times. Just out of curiosity, as a photographer, is there some place you're going to continuously to look at photos? Or I guess these days, maybe just Instagram. I don't know. <laughs> Instagram, man. It has changed. It's kind of easy to watch on Instagram, to be honest. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? I've not listened to them recently, but I am a big fan of Rob's translation of NPR. Do you know Rob's translation? Yeah, I just discovered it the other day. I listened to one about like a French McDonald's or something like that. It was good. <laughs> yeah, and I love their first season. It's incredible. Rough Translation is my favorite. If I have to read something for fun, I will read history. I can just read on internet or like if I have a book around. And also like I read about other photographers' work or recently I've been reading about portraits who wrote like Ways of Seeing. Do you know that? It's a British art critic, John Berger. I actually spent a lot of time last couple of years listening to audiobooks about detectives and thrillers. 
Sure. Uh, from Bangladeshi writers or Bengali writers, like from Kolkata or from Dhaka, oh, I, cool. that I never have done. Like I actually spend maybe at least a couple of hours every week to listen to or actually read sometimes thriller or detective novels from Bengali literature. And is it in Bengali or is it in... It, it's in Bengali. But it's great. I mean, it's Feluda is one of the famous detective characters. Our 007 comes from... Uh, Feluda? Yeah. Feluda, like F-E-L-U-D-A. And it's written by Satyajit Roy. He's a greatest filmmaker. Also, he's a writer. Actually, he won ordinary Oscar. If you talk about cinema in the 60s and 70s, he's a Bengali. All the big filmmaker will name his name. So he was also a writer. That's cool. And then the next question is, what is the best journalistic article, piece, photo series, really whatever? But if you had to shout out one piece that was really good that you consumed lately, what would it be? Right away on the top of my head, I can remember Monster really moved me. 2018, the opiate crisis in America, photographed by James Nactre, was a cover story by Time. It was incredibly done such an important story. It was great reporting. I think that really moved me. I can name many others, but this is just on the top of my head. I think it was a great piece of journalistic reportage, photo and reporting. They spent, I think, two years working on that story. And always anything long form, spend more time kind of piece makes me interested and gravitated towards. It was in the paper in the New York Times yeah. magazine? No, it was Time Oh, Time magazine. Time magazine. Gotcha, gotcha. And what was the name of the photographer? James Nactua. He's a war photographer. He's a, he's a veteran. James oh, cool. Nactua. There's a movie on him that I saw this movie, War Photographer. The movie is actually on him, about him covering wars around the world. Cool, wow. And then the next question is, how do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it? Uh, on Saturday in my studio, I took break. On sa- sorry, on Sunday <laughs> I'm in my studio. On Saturday I took a break. You know, I almost was coming to my studio. I'm like, no, I'm going to take a break. So I'm going to appreciate it next day. So yeah, I don't do nine to five. You do you do nine to five? You don't do right? Not really. No. <laughs> no, I mean we work seven days a week, or maybe we go to the beach on Wednesday morning. I try to find a balance. Actually, last one year. I try to avoid working on weekends. Then I can like feed with other friends or whatever they try to do. So I try to do work. But last weekend I worked. And then the next question is, is Twitter important to you? I don't use it actually often because I don't cover spot news kind of situation. I try, you know, sometimes I have to get some fast information. What's happening like a few weeks ago, I wanted to follow a rally or march. And then I kind of lost it and I'm trying to figure out, but I couldn't actually figure out also even from Twitter. So, um, no. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Is it okay if I don't answer this question? Yeah, that's fine. What do you think you bring to the table that makes you good photojournalist? I think, and people can have different opinion, but I think I bring a different perspective. That's what I try. 
there's ways of telling stories with this visual language. So what I believe that as a photographer, I try to use the power of this language and try to show it in a different perspective, like maybe a little different. I can talk about it in many different ways. Maybe oftentimes I don't like to state the obvious with my pictures, but go a little off grid, like out of the box. Or I can give you an example because I think it's important. When I was covering refugee crisis in Bangladesh, I got a phone call while I was in the camp from another reporter. Oh, did you hear that there was a boat capsized in the shore and the refugees' bodies were found in the shore? And I decided not to take pictures of that. I drove past by that and I decided not. So I made these kind of decisions as a photographer sometimes that I'm not going to take pictures of like maybe the dead bodies. That's my completely personal choice. And I was not on an assignment, so I was doing a portrait series of Rohingya refugees on that trip. And actually, one of the pictures was nominated for Picture of the Year from that capsized boat. But I never regret. So I don't know if it answers your questions or not. Because you knew somebody else would. Yeah. You wanted to go do something you thought no one else would do. And you knew somebody else would show up and photograph that. Yeah, there are like, you know, six, seven photographers already there. And I'm sure I drove past by, so, and I didn't stop. And also not trying constantly to be different, to be honest. I'm trying to do what I actually think or like how I see and how I feel about the story. And the story is not about me. It's a story about the people, but also my approach, my present, my actions matter. Maybe this is how I am different. That's a good answer. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Uh, I'm still young enough, 31, but <laughs> 10 years ago, I wish I could have started the photography even like earlier. But I'm glad I found it. So I kind of stumbled upon it on my early 20s, or like I was 21, I think. And then I wish like, you know, the photographers were like, you know, like teenagers right now and making great pictures. I'm like, wow, I wish I could. I could have done that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I'm a good cook. (laughs) (laughs) It's important in quarantine. Yeah, but also I'm a bit like burned out, man. Like I've been cooking every day, three meals a day. I mean, lately I'm not trying to go to the kitchen a lot. Yeah, but I love cooking, actually. It's very relaxing. Because then also most of the time I travel. So it's always meditating for me to cook. But these days I'm cooking a lot, way more than I am usually. I'm the same. I, I like to cook, but I've been cooking every meal since March sixteenth. <laughs> yeah. So uh, exhausting at some point. I would love to order a pizza or something, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists, and why? I like War Photographer, the, the movie on James Nackway on photojournalist. Um, right, okay. Yeah, that was interesting. That's a good one, because, uh, yeah, nobody's mentioned that to me before. I had not heard of it. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Oh, and luckily, I'm doing what I want to do. But if I would have not found or were not able to do photography, maybe I would have ended up being a banker. But like not willingly, it just I had to 
two that I went to business school or ended up doing business. Right. I mean, is there anything else you ever wanted to try? Well, I know. I mean, I always wanted to be a musician, but never happened. Never got a chance to learn. But I mean, I love music. I always hung out with my friends, we had bands, and I used to listen to metal music until my college. So, yeah. Cool. So that's all my questions. So, yeah, I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I mean, it was a pleasure. And I hope I didn't offend anyone because I was very straightforward to my point. I would like to hear feedbacks from people who listen to my podcast so they can reach out to me and say if they agree with me or not. And thanks for doing this. It's great. Cool. Yeah, no, it's been great. You heard the man. To get in touch with him, look for links to his social media accounts and also some of his other work in the episode description or on the show page, foreignpod.podbean.com or email me at foreignpod at gmail.com and I can pass it along to him. Anyway, thank you for listening to my conversation with Ismael Ferdos, a freelance photographer in New York City. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge, huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, August 9th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.